Hello and welcome to episode 18. Much appreciated, as always, for taking the time to give this podcast a go as we keep revisiting some films from the past and present that are well-loved and well-remembered, or maybe in some cases, maybe just the opposite. And if you'll pardon me for quoting actress Lauren Bacall, as is often the case, you'll never hear the word old in reference to a... I'll call it a non-new release, at least not intentionally, you'll hear the word old, because as Bacall herself said, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So, we'll zone in, as we have been doing, on two specific movies, dive into some fun behind-the-scenes facts, and even bring some classic dialogue to the table, like this one from 1993's Mrs. Doubtfire. Help is on the way, dear! Help is on the way! I'm your movie-loving host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. As has become the format of this show, we'll begin with a spoiler-free plot setup of both films that we'll be talking about. Then we'll play fair, and I'll give you a friendly spoiler alert as we segue into the behind-the-scenes fun fact segment. And then we'll close out with the trivia, the online poll results, and a whole bunch of shout-outs to a lot of you and your own creative endeavors. So, let's get today's episode up and running as we pay tribute to the talents of Academy Award-winning actor and comedian, Robin Williams. Maybe a little background info on him may help to set the stage here. He was born Robin McLaurin Williams on July 21st, 1951 in Chicago, Illinois. As a kid, he was pretty much a loner, a misfit in elementary and in middle school. There was there was name-calling because he was overweight, that kind of thing, but he coped by creating all of these different characters and stories in his head. And by the time he was 16, the family had moved to California, and that's where he went to high school. He fell in with the drama club, got a well-earned reputation for being the class clown, and he did some athletics in school too, like wrestling, and when he graduated in 1969, he was actually voted least likely to succeed, as well as funniest student. He began college, intending to have political science be his path, but he continued with drama and theater in college, and so of course it ended up going a different direction. He did get a full scholarship to Juilliard, the prestigious performing arts school in New York City. He was one of two accepted, this would have been around 1973, and the other student who was accepted along with him was Superman's own Christopher Reeve. And Reeve would remember years later how Robin Williams would wear tie-dye shirts and tracksuit bottoms, and he would talk a mile a minute. I know that's not hard to picture, to be honest. They did become good friends and roommates, and in 1983, Reeve even became godfather to Williams' son, Zachary. They stayed good friends right up to Christopher Reeve's death in 2004. And there's a quote straight from Robin Williams from Biography.com. It's from a 2006 interview, and Robin Williams said, and I quote, We were totally opposite, me coming from the West Coast and a junior college, and him from the hardcore Ivy League. He used to be the studly studly of all studlies, and I was the little fool ferret boy, end quote. But their differences did not drive them apart. Instead, as Christopher Reeve noted, and I quote, we clicked right away because we were exact opposites. So, by the time Williams left Juilliard, he started on the stand-up circuit. He did comedy along the West Coast in California. He was performing at the Comedy Club in Los Angeles when there was a TV producer who discovered him and offered him a role. He was The producer was relaunching the hit 60s comedy variety TV show Laughing, and he wanted Robin Williams to be part of that effort. So, unfortunately, that reboot tanked, but... 
He did land a gig as a semi-regular. He made a few appearances on the short-lived Richard Pryor show on television. He continued with the stand-up at the same time, and it was doing that where he impressed TV producer Gary Marshall enough for Gary Marshall to offer him the role of Mork from Ork, and that, of course, became the comedy series Mork and Mindy. It had initially started off as a one-time guest appearance on Gary Marshall's hit show Happy Days, and the character proved to be so popular that a spinoff was a spinoff was suggested. So Mork and Mindy is a spinoff of Happy Days. He apparently came in for the audition, stood on his head on the chair that he was supposed to sit in, and began doing his lines that way. Again, <laughs> not hard to believe. Mork and Mindy did run from 78 to 82, so that was a good solid four years, and it was a ratings hit for ABC. After that series ended, he eventually found film success, doing both comedy and drama. He did movies like The World According to Gop and Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poet Society, The Fisher King, of course, Disney's animated Aladdin. And that leads us to the spoiler-free plot setup of both of today's featured movies. And those two movies, one of them is 1990s drama Awakenings, and the other one is 1993's comedy drama Mrs. Doubtfire. That came out in, the, in December of 93. It was a holiday season release. Awakenings, a drama, Mrs. Doubtfire, a comedy with dramatic elements sort of woven into it. And so, why these two out of his entire body of work? Why are we focusing on these two? Well, keeping it to two has pretty much become the general format of the show, and it seemed to make sense to go for one drama and one comedy, since a lot of people think that he was equally skilled at both. And no, it was not easy to whittle the list of memorable Robin Williams performances down to just two. That's a pretty tall order when you have this self-imposed mandate to do just that, to cut it down to two, but did manage to do it, so we will begin by talking a little bit, spoiler-free at this point at least, about Awakenings. Awakenings, which was directed by Penny Marshall, she also co-executive produced, and she herself had her own history with television producer Gary Marshall because she was a television actress. She was famous for playing Laverne in Laverne and Shirley, which was also a spinoff of Happy Days. So Penny Marshall and Robin Williams, their characters in their respective Happy Days spinoffs, they all existed in the same universe. And, of course, alongside Robin Williams... In Awakenings, you have the great Robert De Niro, but we'll focus on Robin Williams, of course. I don't know the, I don't know the details of the legalities of how things work in Hollywood or in filmmaking in general. I would imagine that there is a difference between saying based on a true story and inspired by true events. You'll sometimes see one or the other in movies that say, you know, this really happened. Either way. Awakenings is based on the book of the same name. It was written by a neurologist named Oliver Sacks, Dr. Oliver Sacks. The book is about how in 1969, he was, I think, three years at Mount Carmel Hospital in the Bronx. He began to, he began to administer a drug to catatonic patients who survived the global uh, epidemic of the 20s that was called the, the quote, sleeping sickness, which in medical terms, the official name is encephalitis, and that's spelled E-N-C-E-P-H, encephalitis. Incredibly, this drug that the real-life doctor Oliver Sacks administered, it quote-unquote awakened 
these catatonic patients from, you know, from their state. They were able to walk. They were able to engage in conversations. They were able to write things down. Basically, they were able to, to use their bodies again. And what makes this real-life event so awful is that the effects of the drug were short-lived. And one by one, they all slipped back eventually into a state of catatonia after this, after this limited period of awakening. So that's the true story that the movie is based on. So what Penny Marshall did, and what the crew did, was they took this book, Awakenings by Dr. Oliver Sacks. They took this book, they fictionalized Dr. Sacks. They changed his name to Dr. Malcolm Sayer, and that's Robin Williams' character. They reduced the amount of time between his first coming to the hospital and when he began the experimental treatment. In real life, it was about three years. In the movie, it's made out to be a matter of 45 seconds. Uh, this is the kind of thing that movies based on true stories have to do all the time, which makes sense if you think about it. You, you can't take, you know, X number of years and cram it all in detail by accurate detail into a regular length motion picture. You're going to have to condense a few things and consolidate a few characters involved, you know, that kind of thing. Unless you're making a documentary, then as far as I see it, as long as you're capturing the essence of the story, then that's good enough, for me at least, the majority of times at least. I know that I just keep qualifying everything that I'm saying here, so let's just forge ahead. Uh, when it's a movie that's not a documentary, Creative Liberties, I would say the majority of time they work. Uh, sometimes they don't. With Awakenings, I think it serves its purpose well, tells the story, and it puts the, it puts the story out there into the public consciousness, I mean. So the movie opens, and we see a group of young boys outside. One of them is attempting to carve his name, which is Leonard, into the back of a public bench. We're in the Bronx, and he's having noticeable trouble holding the knife in his hand. And we then see him taking a test at school, and he's unable to hold the pen in his hand steadily. He's unable to control how he writes. And later, after the class ends, the test is over, everyone's gone, the teacher's alone in the room. She's at her desk and she's grading everything. And she's going through a grade book. She notices that she has everyone's scores written in her grade book, except for his. And so she's taken aback. Wait a minute, where's his? She gets up, she walks over to his desk and looks inside, finds his text, his test booklet. And you know, she shakes her head affectionately, you know, like she's thinking to herself, oh, you know, she's thinking fondly, oh, what an absent-minded kid, didn't hand in his test booklet, well, here it is. And she finds it, and she looks at it, and she opens it up. She notices that there is no writing. There's just wavy lines and scribbles. And she looks concerned, of course. And then we see Leonard in his bedroom. He's sitting up on his bed, and He's looking at his hand, and he's unable to control his hand movements. And this kid, who is about 12, maybe 13, he's the Robert De Niro character. So that's all within the first few minutes of the film. And now it's years later, and the words based on a true story appear on the screen. And you see Robin Williams. He's the fictionalized version of the real-life Dr. Sachs. He walks up to this hospital he sort of gingerly walks over to the receptionist and introduces himself. Hi, I'm Dr. Malcolm Sayer. I'm here for a job interview. You know, he's looking to be neurologist on staff. And we can pretty much tell right out of the gate that he's meant to be the archetypal character with high ideals, the one who faces off against the more cynical and bureaucratic ones in authority. You know, so he's in the interview and he asks, how do these people get well? And 
Dr. Kaufman, who's interviewing him, played by John Hurd. Dr. Kaufman says, uh, I don't know if he's supposed to be the chief of staff or the manager or what, but Dr. Kaufman, he's the one in charge, and he says, they don't. They don't get well. So there's the dynamic. There's the conflict that's set up right away. And he was also the jerkwad father in Home Alone. So there is a surprisingly effective performance also by Julie Kavner, Madge Simpson herself. She plays Nurse Eleanor Costello, and she tells Dr. Saya, it gets easier. You don't think it will, but it does. So Robin Williams, he, well, Malcolm Saya, he's settling into his new routine. And one day, Nurse Eleanor, she brings in a female patient named Lucy Fishman, a new arrival. She says that Lucy was found by neighbors with her sister several days after her sister had died and that there are no other living relatives. Lucy is in this catatonic-like state, and he's documenting it at his typewriter as dementia of unknown origin, unresponsive. So Dr. Saya is now alone in the room with her when she suddenly bends over and she's clutching a pair of eyeglasses, and he's taken aback by this unexpected movement. He's taken aback by this unexpected movement. He goes over to her, he drops the glasses, she catches them. He immediately tells the rest of the staff, and he demonstrates. He tosses a ball at her, and she catches it. Of course, <laughs> the jerkwad, John Hurd, he dismisses it as nothing more than just a reflex. And Dr. Sayer counters that. He says, no, it's not, because if it were, she would have batted the ball away. She wouldn't have caught it. And he says, it's as if having, it's as if having lost a will of her own, she's borrowing the will of the ball. Which, yeah, that's a pretty cryptic and dramatic statement. It's a rather... I don't know. <laughs> as far as lines of dialogue go, yeah, it's a bit heavy, but uh, John Hurd once again showcases how being a jerkwad is his acting forte. He and the others, they all chuckle at that, what he just said, and Kaufman actually accuses Sayer of doing nothing more than trying to make a good impression. You know, you're the new kid in the block, and you're trying to pass yourself off as more knowledgeable than we are, and so they're not buying what he's trying to convince them of. Though Nurse Eleanor, she does, you know, they all chuckle as they leave the room, shaking their heads. She turns to Malcolm Sayer and says to him, I like your explanation better. Lucy Fishman, by the way, the character who is catching the ball and catching the, uh, the eyeglasses, she's played by Alice Drummond, and if you're watching the movie and shaking your head in frustration, I'll save you the trouble of banging your heads on the, your hands on the side of your TV set or device or whatever screen you're using and, you know, hollering, hey, where do I know her from? Alice Drummond, she was the librarian in the opening scenes of the original Ghostbusters from 1984. And in more recent years, she was one of the nuns in the 2008 drama Doubt with Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman. So a pretty well-established actress she is. Robin Williams, so he's now working with Lucy, Lucy Fishman, and that's when he first notices Robert and, well, Leonard, played by Robert De Niro. And he takes an interest in Leonard as well. Leonard has spent all these years in that same state. And to cut right to the chase, what Saya learns about Leonard and Lucy and the rest is that the one thing that they all have in common is that they all survived encephalitis back in the 1920s. And that's when we have actor Max von Sydow. He makes a brief but significant appearance. He fills in some of the information gaps. He tells Dr. Sayer about how back in the 1920s, he dealt with the epidemic. He saw these children uh, afflicted 
uh, afflicted by it. Most of them died from it, and those that didn't die from it. How they didn't realize back then how much the infection damaged the brains of those who survived. And after some years, these neurological symptoms would appear. They could no longer dress or feed themselves or speak. And this makes Malcolm Sayer turn to Dr. Kaufman and say, What I believe, what I know, is that these people are alive inside. And that's where I'm stopping with the story setup, because there is, I know it sounds like a lot has been put out there, but there is a lot more story that unfolds, and like I've said before, there's not a snowball's chance in hell that I'm going to get into that in this segment here. I will just leave it at, just check it out. (laughs) Check out Awakenings. And... That is a pretty heavy story, no two ways about it, and it's, I would say it is done very well. Like I said, yeah, there are certain, there are certainly some recognizable formulaic elements to the way that the story is told. You can see how the Hollywood machine went with some of the familiar generic formulas and generic conventions to to chug the story along like i said before the idealist versus the establishment you know maybe there is some element of truth to that i mean who knows but the way it's depicted in the film it certainly follows a familiar routine that you a lot of times will see in in hollywood dramas but enough about hollywood dramas at this point because now is the time to pivot towards today's other featured film This is the one that got Robin Williams a Golden Globe for Best Leading Actor in a Comedy, and it also won Best Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. So let's give it up for 1993's Mrs. Doubtfire. This is the film that, in my mind anyway, shows in a positive light how just because two people may not work out as a married couple, that doesn't mean that they cannot do a bang-up job co-parenting in the end. Yeah, it has its sentimental and its dramatic moments, but there really is some very excellent Robin Williams brand of comedy in here as well. So, Mrs. Doubtfire takes place in San Francisco, California, and Daniel... Daniel, he played by Robin Williams, he is a voice actor. He's always between jobs. And at the beginning of the film, we see him providing the, vo- the voice of an animated character. And the character picks up a cigarette, begins smoking, and he does not feel that this is something that he can in good conscience do. He doesn't want little kids to watch this and to get the idea that smoking cigarettes is, is okay. So he speaks up about that, says, no, nah, I'm not doing it. So he walks off the job. And Miranda, his wife, played by Sally Field, she's a working professional. I think she's supposed to be an architect. And they have three kids, uh, two girls and a boy, Lydia, Chris, and Natalie. And it's Chris's birthday. So he gets home, and it's Chris's birthday. Chris apparently has been grounded for something. So Robin Williams being the, you know, looking to be the fun dad, he has all of these kids over. He throws this birth this huge birthday party for his kid. Uh, the dancing on the tables, they have animals from a petting zoo, and all these kids are running around and trashing the place. And Sally Field, Miranda, she comes home from work and not expecting any of this. And she has a birthday cake in her hands, and she walks in in astonishment and shock and horror at what her house has turned into. And she puts the cake down, and she's staring around at the mess. And then you see one of the goats from the petting zoo go on over and begin eating the cake. She's horrified. So this, of course, is not going to bode well for Daniel. She catches him dancing on the table and he climbs down and then we see the two of them having it out in the kitchen while the three kids are listening in from the stairwell so uh 
basically that's all the beginning of the film that's when she says to him i want a divorce you know obviously it has been building up for quite some time and this is you know the situation that finally for her was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back so they split up and you know you, you have, we have a few scenes of you know the reactions to that and the fallout basically now that she is on her own with the three kids she needs someone to watch them after school so he disguises himself as a British nanny. He sees the advertisement that she puts in the newspaper for, you know, needing someone, you know, after school, helping out with homework, cooking dinner, that kind of thing. He desperately wants more time with his kids, so he disguises himself as a British nanny. He goes to his brother, who is a makeup artist, and they create this latex, latex mask and a wig and, you know, all of this skin makeup, and he basically... <laughs> pretends to be this this older woman and i am going to this is dangerous of me to say but i'm going to assume that a lot of you listening to this have either seen this film or at least know that basic premise of mrs doubtfire still though i really am not going to say much beyond this point as far as the story goes because again i want to be a nice guy and if there's any hope of you continuing to return to this podcast i am not going to put out all these spoilers without warning. So I will say right now, I'm going to be getting into the next segment, which is the top 10 facts for each film. So if you have seen these movies, then feel free to keep listening. If you have not, feel free to keep listening anyway. And if you have not, but want to see the movies first or want to go back and revisit them first, as is the case every time, I say to you, proceed at your own discretion. Because from this point on, details from both movies including plot spoilers and the endings they're going to come fast and furious so <laughs> friendly spoiler alert and like i also say every time if you're hitting pause certainly go watch one or both films hope you enjoy them save me some popcorn and pretty please do not forget to come back afterwards savor the goodness that's about to begin in the form of each movie's top 10 fun facts first up awakenings we're going to go in order of release because what the hell why not so number 10 Fun fact number 10 for Awakenings. Veteran actresses Kay Ballard, Shelley Winters, and Anne Jackson, they were all considered for the role of Leonard's mother. That's the Robert De Niro character. Leonard's mother, Mrs. Lowe. Ruth Nelson was the one who was eventually cast. However, Robert De Niro, he wanted Shelley Winters to play his mother. The studio insisted that Shelley Winters had to read for the part first. Winters was insulted by the fact that she had to read first. She refused to do so, and when she met with the casting director, reportedly she first took out one, then she took out her second Academy Award that she had won throughout her career, placed them both on his desk, and she said, allegedly, some people think I can act. Do you still want me to read for the part? Well, she didn't get it, so I guess we know what the answer was. <laughs> Number nine, <laughs> there was a Los Angeles Times interview dated December 23rd, 1990. And the real-life Dr. Oliver Sacks said that Robert De Niro studied footage of the real-life patient awakenings in 1969. He looked at the at the filmed footage of the real-life patients. And Robin Williams also spent time with Dr. Sachs and observed him with patients. And that was noted in the January 1991 issue of Vogue. Number eight. According to a December 3rd, 1990 Los Angeles Times brief, there was a woman by the name of Lillian, Lillian T., just the 
last initial was given, the only living survivor at that point, the only living survivor of Dr. Sachs's post-encephalatic patients who awakened in 1969. Uh, she appeared in an early five-hour cut of the film. They actually had her in the film, in, in an earlier cut of it, and in a sequence showing a hospital library that was built by the patients. But the library subplot was removed, and she does not appear in the final version of the film at all. But she is credited, if you take a look at the end credits, you will see her credited underneath special thanks. And her name was Lillian T. Number seven, roughly one month after Awakenings hit theaters, this would have been January of 1991 now, Los Angeles Times reported that Oliver Sacks would be laid off from the Bronx Psychiatric Center. He would be laid off the following month in February of 1991 because of budget cuts, budget cuts that were affecting New York State mental hospitals. And he had worked there since 1966. So the movie is one month in theaters, and what should be a renewed interest in and appreciation for his work, instead, because of budget cuts, he was being laid off. Number six, the film Awakenings is rated PG-13. It may or may not, who knows, it may or may not have turned out differently, though, the film rating, had one of Julie Kavner's lines not been edited. In the original cut of the film, she's rushing over to Robin Williams. This is the point when more and more patients have awakened, and she rushes in, and she's, she wakes him up, and she exclaims, in the original cut, she exclaimed, it's an effing miracle. And they're running down the hall, and he says, where are my glasses? And she says, they're on your face. And he says, oh, okay. So they took out the F-bomb. Take out Madge Simpson's F-bomb, get your PG-13 rating. Number five, Steven Spielberg had expressed interest in directing this movie when it was in the early planning stages, and ultimately, of course, the job went to Penny Marshall, but Spielberg and Robin Williams, they would work together the following year because they collaborated, as you probably know, on the family movie Hook. And that was with Dustin Hoffman, Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell. Number four, John Hurd. <laughs> now, I mentioned John Hurd already. He is the stereotypical, you know, arrogant and stubborn and obstinate establishment in this movie. He made a career, John Hurd did, he made a career out of playing the aforementioned jerkwads. He was in movies like 1979's The Scarlet Letter. He was in 1988's Big. He was in 1990's Home Alone. Uh, he played Kevin McAllister's father. And he's a jerkwad in some way, shape, or form in all of these films. He does the same thing here in Awakenings. But his director in, for Awakenings, Penny Marshall, she knew already just how capable he was of reaching these slimy heights because she directed him in Big two years before. He was in Big, she directed Big. He plays the executive who feels uh, insulted by the, the Tom Hanks character. And so he says to him in the context of a board meeting, I don't get it. I don't get your sales pitch. And he's just trying to, you know, cut him down and cut him down. That's John Hurd. I'm trying to find a movie, trying to think of a movie where he plays actually a nice guy, but be damned if I know. So if you can think of one, please help me out. <laughs> Number three, a casting could have been. Penny Marshall's first choice for the role of Leonard Lowe was not Robert De Niro. You want to know who it was? It was Bill Murray. 
That was our first choice. But in the end, she went with De Niro so that nobody who was going to go see the movie would expect that there would be, you know, any underlying comedic elements in it. She basically wanted to, you know, let me get a dramatic actor because I don't want to treat this material too lightly. And that worked out well for De Niro because he went on not only to get a National Board of Review Best Actor nomination, but he got an Oscar nomination for this as well. Number two, in the scene where De Niro is, remember when he's forcibly trying to get past security to, to leave the hospital grounds, he wants to go for a walk, and they're all saying, you cannot go out there on your own. They're all physically restraining him, and Robin Williams is behind them, waving his arms frantically, yelling at them to stop, leave him alone, and they wrestle him to the ground. In all of that, in that melee, Williams, when they were filming this scene, he accidentally broke Bobby De Niro's nose f filming that moment. And De Niro later said that his nose had actually been broken previously in the past, uh, but that it didn't set right. So when Robin Williams broke it, it actually straightened his nose back out for him. At least that's the way Bobby De Niro put it. So there you go. Uh, number one, Robin Williams referred to Awakenings as one of his favorite films out of all the ones that he had done throughout his career. He got a Best Actor nomination from the National Board of Review, same category as Robert De Niro. Both of them were in the leading category. And Williams also got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Leading Actor in a Drama for playing Dr. Malcolm Sayer. So, so there you go. Awakenings, released in 1990. It was a Best Picture nominee. Penny Marshall was not a Best Director nominee that year, but it did get nominated for the screenplay and for Robert De Niro's performance. So if you haven't seen it, it is one that I would recommend. Again, yes, it is formulaic in a lot of ways, but that does not mean that it's any less fascinating of a story. There is a big difference between the story itself and how the story is told. So what I call Awakenings a perfect movie, no, I would not. Would I call it a compelling story? Absolutely. So I would recommend it. And we're not through yet because we got to give equal time to Mrs. Doubtfire. So buckle up for the top 10 facts of Mrs. Doubtfire. And of course, we can treat this one a bit more lightly. Number 10, did you know that Mrs. Doubtfire was actually based on a 1987 young adult book called Madame Doubtfire? It was a British author. Her name was Anne Fine. And in the U.S., in the U.S., the book was called Alias, Madame Doubtfire. Uh, she's written, and fine, she's written a number of books, but this is the only one of hers that was adapted for the big screen. And she thought up the name Doubtfire from a charity shop in Edinburgh, around the corner from her in the mid-1970s. Fun fact number nine. 14-year-old Lisa Jacob. She showed up to audition for the role of Lydia. Robin Williams and Sally Field's eldest daughter. Uh, she met with the director, Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus, in the audition, introduced her to his mother. And this is according to Variety. Lisa Jacobs says, quote, I remember being introduced to Chris Columbus's mother and thinking I had to really make small talk and be charming because this was my boss's mom. I wanted to make a good impression. End quote. Not surprisingly, it was Robin Williams. Not his mother, not Christopher Columbus's mother at all. Lisa Jacob fell for it. Number eight. The makeup artist got herself an Academy Award for Best Makeup for the film. She won. Her name is Vanille. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. First name, V-E, 
and then Neil, N-E-I-L-L. She won the same award, the same Academy Award, Best Makeup, two other times for her work on the film Beetlejuice and her work on the film Ed Wood, the Tim Burton film with Johnny Depp. Number seven, a casting could have been for Mrs. Doubtfire. What do you think about Tim Allen? <laughs> Tim Allen reportedly turned down the Robin Williams role. I don't know how Robin Williams was not the first choice, but whatever. Tim Allen went on to do Santa Claus the movie, which I guess he thought that Santa Claus 3 was a better career move than Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> I beg to differ, but that's just me. Number six, another casting could have been the role of Natalie, the youngest, was down to two, Mara Wilson and future Gossip Girl star Blake Lively. Blake Lively watched a Robin Williams movie the night before her audition, and she got nervous, and her mother told her, calm down. She, the mother, decided to tell her, you're going to be auditioning with his twin brother. The mother wanted her to relax, and so she told her that lie as a way of trying to, to calm her down. So there she is at the audition, and she has been told by her mother, I mean, why would a mother lie, <laughs> that it's going to be Robin Williams' twin brother, not Robin Williams himself. Robin Williams does not have a twin brother. He was an only child, but whatever. And someone called him at the audition. Someone called him Robin, and <laughs> she put two and two together, and as she herself put it, she blew the audition and Mara Wilson got the role. But Blake Lively got Gossip Girl, so, you know, she's had a good, steady career as well. Number five, the screenplay for Mrs. Doubtfire. It was co-written, well, it was written at two different times, I should say, two drafts at two different points, Randy Mayhem Singer and Leslie Dixon. And in the original draft, Daniel and Miranda remain divorced at the end of the film. 20th Century Fox wanted them to reconcile, wanted them to get back together. So the, the first screenwriter, Randy Mayhem Singer, she said, no, no. So she walked, she quit. And that's when they brought in Leslie Dixon to write another draft, to revise it, revise the ending, make it happier, you know, make the ending that the studio wanted, have them get back together again at the end. So that's exactly what she did. And I'm not sure who it was, but someone in the studio, someone, someone of the big brass, they said, you know what, never mind. <laughs> so once the studio and the director, once they read the revised ending, they brought Singa back to reinstate the original ending and then to give a few final polishes to the script. But both of them were credited as screenwriters. I would assume it probably has something to do with the, the, the writing union, the, writers, the, writing, the writing guild. Number four, The Inevitable Whispers of a possible sequel, began surfacing eight years after the film was released in 2001. As recently as 2014, Robin Williams gave screenwriter David Barenbaum, who wrote Elf, the Will Ferrell Christmas comedy Elf, that screenwriter, Robin Williams, gave the thumbs up to work on a second draft of a script for uh, Mrs. Doubtfire's sequel. Chris Columbus would have returned to direct as well. Williams, Robin Williams' death that same year, of course, resulted in the cancellation of the idea. Project has been shelved permanently. It's never going to be made. But Alan Menken said in 2015 that he was in the early stages of a stage musical adaptation. Alan Menken, of course, is the award-winning songwriter and lyricist for, you know, Beauty and the Beast and the Disney Renaissance classics. 
the stage musical version of Mrs. Doubtfire, it is stalled. It stalled in 2016. There really has not been much conversation about it since, so who knows if it will ever actually happen, but the idea has been floating around. Number three, the character of Mrs. Doubtfire was partially inspired by Robin Williams's real childhood nanny, Lolly, L-O-L-L-Y. The tabloids, they hunted her down and eventually found her in a nursing home in Michigan. She did not relish the attention, shall we say, so that was a bit uncomfortable for her, but the local paper ran a story on her under the headline, The Real Mrs. Doubtfire. Number two, director Chris Columbus, he had and I can understand why, <laughs> he had multiple cameras going when shooting scenes in order to get the entire cast's reactions because Robin Williams was constantly, as he did with most of his films, and I would imagine with Mork and Mindy as well, he was always improvising, going off with all of his ad-libs, and so he wanted to get, Chris Columbus wanted to get the cast's legitimate reactions to, to some of his, you know, off-the-cuff lines of dialogue that he would come up with on the spot. So he had multiple cameras filming. He had enough footage to have the option of editing the movie. He had four different versions of the film, one that would have been PG, one that would have been PG-13, one that would have been rated R, and one that would have been NC-17, which, again, if Robin Williams is improvising, you can only imagine some of the things that must have flown out of his mouth. Ultimately, they chose the PG-13 rating, and... There you go. And number one, the famous scene when Robin Williams smashes his face into the, into the cake in order to convince the social worker that it's a, a nightly face mask for the skin. He's pretending to be his own non-existent sister. A glob of the icing, if you remember, drips off his face and into the social worker's cup of tea. And he says, oh, there you go. You've now got your cream and your sugar now. All of that was unintentional and ad-libbed. The glob of icing dripped off his face because of the studio lights, and it was warming up the set and warming up his face. So all of that was ad-libbed, and her reaction when it plops into her cup of tea is a great example of what I just said when <laughs> the multiple cameras were filming legitimate reactions. So go back and look at that scene on YouTube, and that was a legitimate, you know... <laughs> little uh, jump that she gave when it plopped into her tea, the glob of, a glob of uh, cake icing. And there you have the top 10 for Mrs. Doubtfire. And we are now ready to go into the final segment of today's show, Trivia Time. And to reiterate, it does not matter when you send in your answer. If you're listening to episode 5, 10, 15, and still want to answer, go for it. There is no cutoff. It wouldn't be fun that way. How would it be fun that way? No exclusivity, no no anything. So play along at any time. You'll get a personalized meme and a shout-out. So please don't be shy, just have fun. So, in the last episode, we looked at Clue and Knives Out. And the trivia question was, name the EGOT-winning icon, the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony-winning icon, behind many of the comedies that Madeline Kahn of Clue appeared in. And the answer is... Mel Brooks, the irreverent Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony-winning comedian... He helmed comedy classics like Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles and History of the World Part 1, all movies that Madeline Kahn appears in. And there are some shout-outs to give in no particular order. First, 
I want to give a shout out to Mary C. As always, Mary, thank you for playing. You are right. It was Mel Brooks. Great to hear from you again. And thank you for everything that you bring to the Facebook group Silver Screeners. Joining Mary in the Winner's Circle is Mike Davis, who has a Star Wars-themed podcast of his own called Now This Is Podcasting. It's a play on Anakin Skywalker's line, Now This Is Pod Racing, from The Phantom Menace. He's got different takes on different Star Wars characters, the themes of the storylines, really good stuff. Mike's going to come on Silver Screeners very soon for an episode dedicated to the original trilogy from back in the day. So check his show out for some Star Wars talk. It's always a pleasure. And speaking of pleasures, it is always a pleasure and a privilege to say hi to the Stu and Alpod over in the UK, a fun comedy duo they are. They create these characters and different voices. They riff on each other. They laugh. They're just primo. So Stu and Al, double thumbs up. And we also have Alicia W., who also says Mel Brooks. Kudos to you as well, another contributor to the Silver... That does lead us now into this week's new trivia question. Out of a total of four Academy Award nominations, Robin Williams did nab the prize once. Which movie got him as Oscar? And I'm actually going to give this one to you in the form of multiple choice. So, which movie got Robin Williams as Oscar? Was it Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poets Society, The Fisher King, or Goodwill Hunting? So, yes, you heard it correctly. It is a multiple choice question this time around. Send your answers on over. And as always, if you have any follow-up questions, uh, any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on Awakenings, Mrs. Doubtfire, any Robin Williams movie that I have or have not mentioned, hit me up on my socials. As always, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter. The film group Silver Screeners is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza1974 on Instagram, or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. And thank you to everybody who voted in the poll as well. The poll asks if you preferred Williams's performances in comedy, drama, both, or if you think it depends on the film. And after tallying everything up from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, it looks like what we have is... <laughs> A win for depends on the film. We had a couple of votes for comedy. We had two for comedy. We had four votes for both comedy and drama together. We had two for drama. We had three for the option of depends on the film. And I'm, again, excited by the feedback that came in. So I'd like to give a few more shout-outs, if I may, to, to a lot of you. Marilyn B., You'll notice that I'm always doing last initials because I never want to be presumptuous and assume that everybody necessarily feels comfortable with their full names out there. So let me know if you feel otherwise. <laughs> uh, Marilyn B., she says, comedy was his forte, in my honest opinion. Good hearing, you from, uh, hearing from you, Marilyn. I took about, uh, I think it was four or five different film courses with Marilyn a number of years ago. She taught the film courses, so... I owe her a great deal for exposing me to a lot of great, uh, a lot of great films. Andrew Bennett, my buddy Drew from Ben Spock Family Adventures, he says very succinctly, very aptly, he says, "I loved him in everything," and I think that says it all. Five words that say it all. I loved him in everything. Be sure to check out Drew's daily vlog on YouTube if you haven't already. And Gail Ah, she offers this. I liked that he did both so well. He broke our hearts on screen and off. I love his turn as Teddy Roosevelt in Night at the Museum. Great choice there, Gail. And Tara M says, my two favorites are What Dreams May Come and Good Morning Vietnam. 
but I grew up on Mork and Mindy. Tara, I've had a lot of people relate to that. You also have two great choices. And I'm glad that you said that about Mork and Mindy, too, because I went back and watched the opening credits of Mork and Mindy on YouTube right before recording, and I was suddenly seven years old again. So, And Meredith M. says... The Birdcage. <laughs> I just I just begin smiling and laughing to myself just by the title alone because of just how how sweet but how wacky this movie is. The Birdcage is a movie I watch once a year. I just love everything about it. The part where he slips in the kitchen and Agador holding the shrimps. <laughs> that clip is also on YouTube. Look for it. You'll find it. And thank you, Meredith, for the reminder of that scene because that one had actually gone out of my head. I hadn't seen The Birdcage in a very long time. So thanks to all of you for your contributions. Hopefully you're enjoying this interaction as much as I am. I'd love to see it keep going. And that just about does it. That wraps up episode 18. Thank you again, as always, for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you could take a second to give this show a rating on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podchaser, Good Pods, Buzzsprout, wherever you listen to your podcasts, it does help. I say this every time. It does help to increase the show's visibility. It does help with the algorithms. And if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be very much appreciated as well. Thank you for joining. Rock on. And as always, I'm Frank. And until next time, keep on screening, and I'll see you.